Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... I think people quite naturally interpret Jokowi's strong endorsement of Prabowo as offering a surrogate. But I think the package, Jokowi, I'm, I'm backing this pair, Prabowo Subianto and, and Gibran, my son, and if you like me, vote for them. Outgoing Indonesian President Yoko Widodo surprised many when he threw his weight behind the candidacy of Prabowo Subianto, a former presidential rival. But as Jokowi's son was selected as Prabowo's running mate, the succession plan for a dynasty becomes clear. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. In 2023, the EU passed legislation encouraging users to repair purchased goods under a right to repair. Users are now empowered by the right to request repairs after guarantees expire for almost any product purchased. In Australia, our right to repair law hasn't yet reached such universality. Stephen Samaras asked Professor Leanne Wiseman, Chair of the Australian Repair Network at Griffith University, what the right to repair is and why it's so far behind in Australia. It's a consumer rights, competition, environmental law perspective about empowering consumers with rights to repair their goods without having to go to the authorised repairer of the manufacturer or if they so choose to take their goods to third party to repair their goods. It's also about requiring manufacturers of our smart goods to make their tools, parts and information available not only to us as the owners of the goods but also to third party repairers. How can repairs be made more accessible and easier for consumers to access and perform themselves? Repair is something that can be made much more accessible in Australia. What's really important is that we have not only the spare parts and tools and information available to us so that repair can become affordable and accessible and easier, but if we look to what's happening in Europe, for example, they've just passed provisional directive on the right to repair and it's all about placing responsibility on manufacturers to make their products more repairable in the first place so the way that they design them but also making them make sure that they make their spare parts and tools and information available and if someone has a broken um, device if they take it back to the manufacturer then the manufacturer should in the first instance, if possible, repair that product. You know, whether it be your washing machine or your vacuum cleaner or your microwave or your car. And in some cases, it's your, your tractor for the farmers on our farms as well. What's the difference between Australia's right to repair laws and the EU's right to repair laws? Well, in Australia, we have our first right to repair law is all about getting your car repaired at an independent repairer. It's what we call a mandatory data sharing law. And what it means is that you're not forced to take your motor vehicle back to the car manufacturer each time it it needs a, a fix. You can get the information provided to your independent repairer. So that's our first right to repair law. We don't really have um, anything else 
in the pipeline at the moment around consumer electronics or ag machinery. But what's been happening in the EU and the US also is that they're actually passing legislation that enables repair to happen. The EU recently, as I mentioned, is going to create an online repair platform to help connect consumers with repairers. They're going to look at extending the liability period or the warranty period of products so that when you buy a product, you have clear understanding of when your manufacturer's warranty runs out and when your consumer rights under our Australian law are effective. But there's also this right and obligation on manufacturers to make their goods more repairable and also to take those goods back for repair. So this is it's a really important movement forward in the EU. And we've seen legislation in the US as well around medical device repair, agricultural machinery repair, school equipment like laptop being more easily able to be repaired, as well as a whole raft of legislation around consumer electronics. So Australia is really lagging behind. We have something in the automotive sector, but we really need to be looking across a broad range of goods and services. Is there an environmental benefit to making repair easier to access for consumers? There's a huge environmental benefit from repairing and reusing as opposed to putting all of these goods into our waste stream. E-waste is the fastest growing waste stream in the world. There's a global crisis around the amount of electronic waste that's being generated, not only in terms of you know the materials that are being mined to go into new devices like phones and laptops, but if they're broken and they have to just be thrown out and not repaired, This is really contributing to a huge kind of environmental problem. So there's a huge environmental benefit to being able to keep your goods in use for longer, to be able to take them and get them repaired by someone who's local or an independent repairer um, at, at a reasonable cost without any barriers. And that's what we've found in Australia. Our Productivity Commission has done an inquiry into the barriers around repair in Australia. And there are recognise barriers around people getting access to not only the spare parts but the diagnostic information that all of our smart goods need now to get fixed. So it's it's really important not only for our pockets to save money but also to reduce the environmental harm that's being caused but also there's a really interesting and strong case around repair skills and knowledge. You know, we've got generations of people who are able to fix things, our appliances, And it's really important that we keep that economy going and that repair economy is strengthened in Australia, that we're able to fix things that we buy and own. Professor Leanne Wiseman, Chair of the Australian Repair Network at Griffith University, speaking there with Stephen Samaras. Hi, I'm Ray Martin. You're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay well. Indigenous organisations and advocates have enthusiastically welcomed the creation of a Commissioner for First Nations Youth. The role, announced on the 16th anniversary of the National Apology to the Stolen Generations and also the introduction of the Closing the Gap targets. After years of unfulfilled promises, reaction has been optimistic at the creation of the Commissioner. Noah Seckham has the story from Canberra. 
The announcement of the Commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people is part of the Labor government's response to the latest Closing the Gap report, which showed only four of the 19 socioeconomic targets are on track. Four targets have worsened. These are children's development, the rate of out-of-home care, adult detention rates and suicide prevention. Indigenous Affairs Minister Linda Burney says a change in approach must be taken to see any improvement. We have not pulled these ideas out of the air by any means. They have been developed in consultation uh, with First Nations people and in particular the Coalition of the Peace who have advocated long and hard for the Children's Commissioner. Indigenous children are ten and a half times more likely to be in out-of-home care compared to a non-Indigenous child. Catherine Little is the CEO of the National Peak Body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child and Family Services. She says the creation of the Children's Commissioner is a groundbreaking development. It is the first real illustration of how the national agreement works. Safe and Supported uh, was, was the first national plan negotiated under the Closing the Gap Agreement and it is the first time we have been able to consult with communities across the country to say what is it that you need and how fast do we need to move and without fail they said we need we need the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Commissioner. What we know is that the outcomes for our children are not good. We know that our children are being removed from our families at a rate Uh, that is a national disgrace. We know that we need a mechanism that stops it. We need a mechanism that works with communities to see what's happening, that puts children first and foremost in in what their needs are. There's no other way to describe it. This is a groundbreaking moment. Despite initial positive reaction from across the board, West Australian Greens Senator Dorinda Cox says this cannot be the last initiative supported by the government. In June of last year, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners accounted for a third of the country's incarcerated adults, despite Indigenous Australians only representing 3.8% of the country's population. Senator Cox says there are real changes which can be introduced immediately, such as providing Medicare for prisoners. It is time for the Albanese government to show some leadership and to make some bold changes in relation to that. Now, today they have announced a national First Nations Children's Commissioner, which I would like to congratulate the Minister on, but this is not where it stops. We cannot take our foot off the pedal. We must continue after decades of inaction in this country. In order to close the gap in this country, we need action and we need it now. Dorinda Cox isn't the only senator hesitant to fully endorse the creation of the Commissioner of First Nations Youth. In a post to X, formerly Twitter, independent Senator Lydia Thorpe says she does not believe the Prime Minister's statement yesterday pointed to any recommitment to truth and treaty. Ms Thorpe says there has long been the legacy of Labor to talk treaty and then fail to deliver. However, Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Price has broadly suggested the government is doing treaty by stealth, ignoring any possible positive outcome from the new commissioner. The opposition has also reignited calls for a royal commission into Indigenous child sexual abuse. However, the Coalition of Peaks, the leading Indigenous body representing around 800 Indigenous organisations, has shot down any request from the federal opposition. Professor Wilson Scott, a convener of the Coalition of Peaks, says Indigenous communities gain nothing from broad inquiries. While we were sitting there listening to the uh, leader of the opposition and also the spokesperson for the uh, Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, it was almost like John Howard's sort of ghost was walking in there again because 
basically the same sorts of things that John Howard sort of called for 15 to 16 years ago, which was a Royal Commission into sexual abuse, rampant sexual abuse in, in the Northern Territory that led to a decade of, uh, you know, the intervention and also an audit into Aboriginal community organisations as if we're all just sort of rampant, sort of corrupt sort of organisations. We, we welcome audits because we're actually one of the... Um, truly uh, over-audited organisations throughout uh, Australian public life. So we welcome that and uh, we did hope that that actually come up with really great ideas. Unfortunately, we were left flat. State and Territory Indigenous Youth Commissioners say the commitment to a national commissioner is a step towards addressing systemic imbalances and failures. An interim commissioner will be appointed and begin consultations from the 1st of July to determine the powers and functions of the role. Noah Seckham, our NRN Canberra correspondent, with that report. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. Indonesians are voting on the first round of an electoral contest to decide who will be president in the world's third largest democracy. Stephen Hill asked Professor Greg Barton of Deakin University about what the likely election of Prabowo Subianto means for the state of Indonesia's democracy. Well, long story short, it's not in robust good health, but it's not dire either. A lot's going to depend on this next president. We know with certainty who that will be. It'll be Prabowo Subianto. The only question is whether he's elected outright with more than 50% on Wednesday or has to go to a runoff poll in June. President Jokowi, it's true, is an outsider, not a Jakarta insider, in many respects, moderate pro-business. And through his first five-year term, things seem good. Through the second five-year term, not so much that Jokowi has been anti-democratic, has just not had sufficient respect for democratic institutions and preserving them. So Indonesia still has a free and robust press, but they're facing more legal challenges than this health. And now we have this strange situation where this outsider from Jakarta has basically given his imprimatur who's very much an insider. And people are going to the poll on Wednesday with the mindset of voting for a third term of Jokowi. They don't get a third term of Jokowi, but they get a first term of Prabowo. And whether that amounts to what they're expecting is the open question. So let's talk a little bit about the runner, uh, Prabowo, the former army general, and previously seemed to favour a more authoritarian form of government. But that has been moderated more with, uh, with his policy positions now that he's um, running the third time for the presidential office. If successful, where do you envision Prabowo taking Indonesia over the next five years? Well, the hope is that in the short term, he'll appoint a, a technocratic cabinet that will do a, a decent job, much as Jokowi's cabinet has been doing. But like Jokowi, he's not known as a staunch Democrat by any means. Uh, of course, his credentials are such. There's more of a question mark over him than there is with the current president. Going back to his policy position, in, in 2014, when he was campaigning the first time, for a serious run of the presidency. He literally launched his campaign riding a chestnut stallion channeling Mussolini and then made an address behind period microphones wearing a safari suit looking very much like historic photographs of the first president, President Sukarno. So very much giving strongman vibes. He tried that again uh, over the next five years when he was in opposition. But by 2019, uh, when Jokowi was running for a second term and Prabowo was trying his luck, he pivoted partly because he was involved in some ugly uh, mass protests in the lead-up to a 2017 vote for the governor of Jakarta. And he was seen to be a player behind the scenes trying on Islamist populism to see how it goes ahead of the 2019 election. 
the good news is he acted differently in 2019, was unsuccessful, but then was taken into the cabinet by Jokowi as defence minister and has been relatively moderate ever since. So one of the great concerns when I was in Jakarta around the time of the previous election was about the possibilities of identity politics and uh, religion being weaponised. We had the 212 action protests focused on the Jakarta government, as you talked about. Would it be correct in saying that in this election that issues about religion in the public square are not the driving force and that we can expect that political pluralism will continue to be a main driver? Yeah, a lot will depend on the, the makeup of the government and what sort of deals are, are done and whether we have a strong opposition. So up until now, we've had a weak opposition that's been predominantly Islamist, parties like PKS, the main Islamist party, and that means that the Islamists have been on the back foot. Protests at, at the largest, they probably had 500, 700,000 people on the streets of Jakarta and there were groups like the Islamic Defenders Front, known for vigilante activity and hate speech. Now, Prabowo didn't have a deep organic relationship with them, but he was seen to be aligned with them. But he backed away for that for the 2019 campaign, where he came across much more as a cosmopolitan. But one of the other candidates he's up against on Wednesday, Anis Baswiden, was the guy who was successful in becoming governor of Jakarta with Prabowo's help, it could be argued. But if Prabowo can't get 50%, the question will be where Anis's voters go come June. It's easy to imagine that Anis might come second on Wednesday, in which case the deal-making from his combination of support from PKF and other Islamist groups and also to the traditionalist Nadir Lama. But that deal-making might influence the shape of the cabinet so the scary days of the 212 movement at the end of 2016 appear to have passed, and yet democracy is in a less robust good health than it was then. Time went up. Ganya Nipranoa seemed to be one of the real people to beat when it came to the nomination, but obviously we've had the internal squabbles within the PDIP itself in the nomination process, and also obviously the big one, the defection of Jokowi's son to be the vice president candidate. Has that totally ruined Nipranoa's chances of, of obtaining the position of president? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Oh, I'm speculating. It's hard to explain why suddenly Prabowo is the super popular in 2024 when in 2019 and 2014 he wasn't doing that well. The simplest explanation is that Jokowi with 77% approval rating with an economy that consistently been at 5%-ish growth rate for decades, fairly low unemployment, fairly low inflation. Uh, the people just want more of that. And so they think if they can't vote for Jokowi, and I think people quite naturally interpret Jokowi's strong endorsement of Prabowo. But I think the package, Jokowi, I'm, I'm backing this pair of Prabowo, Subianto and, and Gibran, my son. And if you like me, vote for them. Professor Greg Barton of Deakin University, the biographer of Indonesia's first democratically elected president, Abdurrahman Wahid, speaking there with Stephen Hill. There are significant challenges for many countries in the Asia-Pacific region for food sustainability. Modern supply chain logistics favours foods that are easy to store and transport, and often that means more processed foods. Yet there is demand for a greater variety of foods, and particularly legumes, and I asked Professor Prabhu Pingali from Cornell University, who is in Australia for the Australian Agricultural and Resource Economics Society annual conference, to explain what is changing in world food systems and agriculture. The transformation that's happening globally, especially in developing countries, is this movement away from just basic staple grain-oriented diets towards a more diversified diet. One that um, looks at protein from 
um, vegetable sources such as legumes, pulses, and protein sources from meat and dairy, and also increased consumption of vegetables, fruit, etc. So that's the transformation that's happening. So on the demand side, you can definitely see that. But on the supply side, there's still a lot of limitations in increasing the supply of the non-staple grains. And I think Australia has a lot of experience in increasing productivity of legumes, uh, increasing productivity of um, sorghum and millets and uh, horticulture, and then also in livestock production. So these are areas, I think, where developing countries need a lot more information and technology in order to enhance their own productivity and their own supplies to meet that growing demand. So some of the expertise that Australian farmers have in the mass production of grains is something that is a transferable skill, is it? On the grain side, that transfer, that's a transferable skill and that's already been done. But looking beyond the grain, looking at pulses or legumes, these are the areas, I think, where Australia has expertise that developing countries could use. And uh, Professor Pingali, the advent, I suppose, of uh, global supply chains and the ease with which if there is a a shortage of something somewhere in the world, then it's not really that difficult these days to get something from somewhere else in the world. So previously we might have had uh, shortages because of weather, because of natural problems, and now we can get over those things. Is, Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because it seems to mean that we're getting a lot of this sugar and and starch too easily. Uh, global trade has certainly changed diets also. Um, but, you know, it's much easier to ship long shelf life food than to ship fresh food. And so even if you can ship fresh food, it's much more expensive. And so over time with the supermarket chain spreading with increased globalization and and, uh, the convenience factor coming in, you find that the consumption of long shelf life food, processed food, etc. has been rising. And, you know, if there's a shortage of processed food, it's easy to fill that gap. But it's not easy to fill the gap in a shortage in vegetables especially if there's a seasonal shortage. And so you find the more nutritious foods tend to have a much more erratic supply and tend to have much greater volatility in prices. Therefore, it becomes an affordability issue. Is there a, a technological answer for some of this or is it, is it better to look at more local solutions? Well, the technological solution is to to look at how one can enhance productivity of the non-staples more locally, more within a country. So I'm, I'm not thinking locally in terms of local food, but even for a country to start enhancing its supply of more nutritious food. So And, and are, we right talking, are we talking more like you know Mediterranean diet foods? Is that, 
is that the most nutritionists say that's the best way to look at it. Look at what Mediterranean peoples right. eat, and that's that's a better balanced diet. Is is that yeah. sort of what you're the way you're thinking in the, about this? Um, so I'm not thinking specifically about Mediterranean diets. I'm thinking more generally about bringing fresh food into the diets, and so rather than having a high-fat, high-energy, high-carb diet, you add in more of the vegetables, fruit, um, livestock products, etc. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be purely veget- uh, Mediterranean, but it's just bringing more diversity into the diets. Right. Because, you know, I think when, when, when you said high-fat, high-protein, you know, Process. It just sounds like you know that's that's the cheeseburger, isn't it? So right. so we we've, we've got to, we've got to try and counter the cheeseburger idea in any other sort of a diet choice. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's a question of balancing it up. Professor Prabhu Pingali from the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University and a keynote speaker at the Australian Agricultural and Research Economics Society annual conference in Canberra, speaking with me there. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.